Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. There are moments in our lives that change us, become defining moments because they challenge what we thought we knew and make us think about things differently. On August 2nd, 1990 at 2 a.m. local time, Iraq launched an invasion of Kuwait with four elite Iraqi Republican Guard divisions and Iraqi Army Special Forces. And the main thrust was conducted by the commandos deployed by helicopters and boats to attack Kuwait City, while the other divisions seized the airports and the two air bases. Well, Kuwait didn't stand for long, and the Iraqi invasion quickly turned into a takeover. My guest today is Jo Marie Taylor. She's an American who was visiting Kuwait with her Kuwaiti husband, and she found herself in a hostage situation in this country, hiding and navigating the fear and the daily threat of death, watching the destruction and the murder and the mayhem of the invasion. And all of this challenged the way she thought about life. So stay tuned for her story as she shares her hostage experience and the change it created in her life story moving forward. Joe's story is an opening into our own considerations about how our traumatic experience shape and change us and how that's part of the messy, beautiful process we call life. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Raised in Ogden, Utah in the 60s and 70s, Jo Marie came from a mixed-faith family life with a Catholic mother, and her father's side of the family was part of the Latter-day Saint Church. She met her husband, a former Muslim, at Weber State University, and they were married in 1987. Well, in 1990, they moved to Kuwait to visit her in-laws because her father-in-law had had issues with his heart. And while they were there, Iraq invaded. Her parents went for five weeks hearing nothing but CNN reports on the invasion and being unable to get a hold of their daughter. So let's step into this story and hear about it from Joe's perspective. Joe, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hi, Lori. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, glad to have you. You've said, as we've spoken before, that you had a pretty normal childhood in Ogden, Utah. So let's jump ahead and start with your meeting of your husband at university. Do you think your parents' mixed faith marriage influenced the openness of the idea of marrying a Muslim? Or um, how did that all come about? I think so. I think my parents in general were pretty open-minded. And so it just, they were pretty accepting of everyone. And so I think that did really play a a lot into it. Even though at the time I didn't know, I hadn't heard of Kuwait. I didn't know, you know, too much about Islam or anything like that. You just dug this guy. You didn't know much about his culture. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Okay. So you guys have been married and you decide to go to Kuwait to visit his family. Tell me a little bit about that, a little bit of the precursor of how you end up over there. Well, I just remember that we had received a phone call from his family that his dad was not well, and they wanted him home like as soon as possible. So he left immediately, and 
went to Kuwait and I came a few weeks later because he had to go ahead and arrange for my visa to go. Tell me what that was like when you got over there to Kuwait. Was the culture different? What stands out? Yeah, it was quite a culture shock. I mean, I just simple things that I had taken for granted. I hadn't thought of before. For example, like the national dress. So my husband would wear the long white Kuwaiti dishdasha, which is like the long white gown type thing, and then he had the white turban type thing, which is called glitteragal, and. For some reason, I had never taken into account that he would be wearing that. So when I got off the airplane and went through customs and everything, I was coming out inside the airport. I was looking for him, and all I could see was really like a sea of people wearing the white dashasha, and I could not tell which one he was. So were you expecting him to be there in jeans and a t-shirt? You know, I guess I kind of was. I hadn't really thought about it. So that was like the big, you know, the first major shocker. <laughs> so when you were over there, what other sorts of cultural things started to pop up for you? Well, I was impressed with the opulence of Kuwait. It really was beautiful. I mean, it's a very wealthy country. They divide their wealth. They give it back to the citizens. So, for example, people had really nice houses, and I couldn't distinguish between the houses or the like office buildings or the apartment buildings because everything was so big and opulent. Hmm, that sounds kind of lovely. It was. That part was. It really was. So, where were you when the invasion happened then, and how did that transition things for you? So we had been staying at his parents' house. They lived off of Fifth Ring Road, which is one of the main main roads in Kuwait City. And their area was Rumethia. And we had been living with him, or sorry, with them. So when Iraq came in, it was just full force, unbelievable, thousands of tanks along the main road. <laughs> in the, that morning, I had received a call from my mom. And she was really upset because she had said that Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And I was trying to reassure her that everything was fine. I'm sure, you know, it was just the border. I'm sure everything would be all right. And she had urged me to go to the embassy and make sure that I had registered. And literally within about an hour of hanging up with my mom, all the phone lines were cut. I mean, we were completely surrounded by thousands and thousands of tanks that were going along this main road. And there was, you know, the sounds of helicopters overhead. There were like bombings and shootings and just all sorts of chaos broke out so quickly. Were you terrified? I was terrified. In fact, I really recall spending the first few hours literally under the dining room table because I was so fearful for everything that was going on around me. And I thought, I just need to, I don't know what I thought. I mean, living in Utah, we had earthquake preparedness and they taught us to, you know, hide under the table, protect our heads. And I just, with all the bombing and stuff going off, I just, that's what I did. I just ducked under the table for the first few hours. What did your husband and his family think of it? Everyone was really, really in shock. I don't think anyone was prepared because no one thought this would happen. Everyone quickly kind of went to survival mode because when Iraq came in, first of all, they went through like all of the grocery stores. They took all of the food. 
they started like going through people's houses. So our first initial response was one of, okay, this is immediate threat and danger. They're taking young Kuwaitis and putting them on the front line. You know, we need to figure out a plan. But at that time, there was no way we could get out or we didn't really know how intense this was going to be. Sure, you never do in the beginning. No. So what shocked you the most? What, what ended up happening? Basically, as things went on, one of the things that was probably the most traumatic is Saddam Hussein had made a decree that anyone harboring an American was to be executed on the spot. So we were very blessed in the sense that the neighbors knew I was an American and they knew I was there. And they came in, we had people give us a heads up when the Iraqi soldiers started coming through our neighborhood and going house to house. So I was able to dress up as a Kuwaiti. Fortunately, I have dark hair and dark eyes. And they were able to sneak me out of the house and drive me to a different area where they would hide me, you know, and try and keep me safe. And the dangerous part about that was all of the roads also had checkpoints. So it wasn't like we could just take off and drive away. We had to find back roads and ways to avoid any checkpoints that they had set up. Otherwise, I would be taken immediately and my husband and and whoever was hiding me would be executed. Were the people willing to hide you? It was amazing. I have to say that's another thing that just really stands out about this whole thing. Yes, no one ever questioned it. I never had anyone say, you know, you need to go, you need to leave. In fact, we went to an uncle's house to stay and he was so welcoming. He had little kids, young children, and his wife and older people staying with him. He was just so welcoming he didn't hesitate at all. And I remember at one point I asked him, I said, Amal Mahmoud, you know, I'm putting everyone at danger. Would you like me to leave? Because I just, this is so frightening for me. If the soldiers come through, everyone is in danger. And he looked me in the eye and he says, no, no, I don't want you to go anywhere. You are safe with us and they will have to go through me before they get to you. And it just, oh, <laughs> to this day, it's it's just, you know, so touching. So, I was so impressed by the people that went out of their way, you know, hid me, did things that, you know, shared their food with me. Food was so scarce. And we had a neighbor that brought over a tomato and it was a fresh tomato. And by this time, all the fresh fruits and vegetables were nowhere to be found. And we were pretty much sustained on on rice and whatever they had in the freezer. And I remember the head of the household took this tomato cut it up so each one of us got a little sliver of it, but everybody got to share the fresh tomato. So the loving gestures and the, you know, the self-sacrifice and everyone just pulled together. I didn't have any resistance towards me or anything like that. His family sounds lovely. I mean, those are the spaces where the real heroes show up, like, you know, during Hitler's reign, when the Jews were hid by so many brave people you know, when your own life is in danger and you're willing to help people that you hardly know. I mean, those are really beautiful human spaces. How lovely. I agree. And it was such a double-edged sword, kind of such a catch-22, because 
I knew that being there, I was putting their lives in danger. But at the same time, I just fell in love with these people. And when I finally did get out, that was one of the hardest things because I almost felt like a traitor leaving them. What happened to them? And take us Uh, to the part where you got out. Okay. So after several weeks, the American government and well, basically it was President George Bush Sr. and Margaret Thatcher, they had arranged for what they called the freedom flights. Saddam Hussein had agreed to allow women and children from like the US and the UK to leave. And when I found out that I was on the freedom flight, they told me that I was on the very first one. And I was really nervous about that because I wanted to go. But at the same time, we had to fly to Baghdad to get an exit visa stamped in our passports from Saddam Hussein International. So I was, it was such a tough decision because I didn't know being on the first flight if I was just you know flying right into the mouth of the lion. But as it turned out, what really took the scale on the decision was I knew that my parents were just going crazy. They didn't know if I was dead or alive. And my family over here, plus the fact that I was such a danger to his family, So I realized I just had no choice. And I asked if I could go on a later flight. And they said, no, that was not an option. So yeah, I ended up flying to Baghdad and getting an exit visa and then onto Amman, Jordan, and then so forth. And it took me a little under a week to get home, I believe. What was it like driving through those streets from your hiding spot to where the plane was going to take off? Driving through the streets, that was the worst part. When I talk about the thing that was so challenging with the invasion is there were such brutal atrocities that um, had happened. For example, like streets were lined. They had light poles, the kind that kind of curve over the street. And those light poles were just, each one had a body hanging from it. So the streets were just lined with bodies that had been hung. And we had heard, you know, so many things about how people were being taken and just brutal things happening to neighbors and other family members. And there were checkpoints set up everywhere. So driving through the streets of Kuwait, were, it was so odd because any vehicle that was on the street by this time had been stripped of all the tires, the engine, the seats. Everything that they could take was stripped from that. And just all you had left was like the carcass of the car. And my understanding is because Iraq had been through such a long war with Iran, they didn't have these things. These things were in shortage. And so I guess they maybe were not able to start the cars. So basically they just stripped everything. So there were not just like the horrific images of people hanging but also there was like carcasses of the cars. Buildings had big holes blown out in them. It really was an apocalyptic type of scene. Oh, just sounds macabre. Yeah, very. So was this what challenged your past belief system, seeing this, being exposed to it? Or was it the fear or was it all of it together? What was your belief system before and what did that transition into? You know, it probably was everything, all of it together, because every moment, if I wasn't afraid for my life, I was afraid of everyone around me, you know, whoever was around me, I was afraid for their life. So that was huge. That was a big part of it. That was something that 
we were all just on survival mode. And my belief going into it, it was really funny because I was, you know, raised Christian. And initially when I first moved there, I I had this thing in the back of my head, this thought, a belief that if I didn't convert my husband and his family, you know, they may not have a chance of going to heaven. I mean, this was just my limited naive belief at the time. But through this experience, my eyes opened to a much more broad sense of what love's all about, what God's all about, what even religion's all about, you know, that sometimes we put each other in boxes that are just that, but ultimately we're all the same and we're all connected. And if we can kind of see that, that changes everything because I guarantee, you know, if one of them didn't get into heaven, there's no way I have a chance. (laughs) That's such a beautiful and important insight I think that the humanness of all of us and how we're all okay and how despite the different belief systems, in my verbiage, I would say we're all children of God and we're all loved by God, no matter which you know cultures we're raised in or belief systems that we foster. And we all move toward light or toward darkness through our agency, through our own choices, but that light is a very broad thing. Absolutely. I totally agree. It led me to see things in a much less limited, more universal type of light. And actually, even my old paradigms that I had, they no longer served me because reality as I knew it had changed completely. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that. What were the specifics that changed for you and what did that look like moving forward? I had been diagnosed with PTSD after this and I had this intense fear of death just every day, you know, constantly. And if it wasn't like, again, when I got back home, it it carried over into my life here. And if I wasn't afraid for my own well-being, I definitely was afraid for whoever was around me and my loved ones. So I just had this constant fear of death hanging over my head. And I was fortunate that I had some really great people around me and people like I was able to get really good therapy. And I actually was really angry at God for a while. And I just kept asking, why did this happen? How could this happen? I need answers. I don't understand what's going on. But it just, I was angry. And through that process, I asked those questions and I got answers. I was led to theories on quantum physics. I was led to books about spirituality. And then I really, really got into near-death experiences. I read thousands and thousands of, of case studies from around the world. And they all kind of gave me a broader, I want to say, an expanded consciousness and awareness of what this really is and and how I had started out with such a limited perspective on life. And suddenly that just exploded and expanded. So what did you learn from the near-death experiences that you read? I'm interested in that because I've also studied those a great deal. What was your takeaway? Those are my favorite. A lot of people that think there's no proof of life after death. And for me, they validated that. They validated that there really is. And we have proof. And that's why I just was so fascinated and, and studied them. And the thing that I really, really, really love about it is that 
there are such commonalities in each story. For example, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your religion. There are certain things that are the same, which is the light, which is that we keep on living. We stay connected to our loved ones. It's not that we, this is going to be probably pretty out there for me, maybe a lot of listeners, but I don't believe that there's a hell. I believe that there are possibly various levels and that we all go to where we vibrate, where our vibration is, we continue on. And that is something that I saw through those is that you, and that we all definitely stay connected. Love is the greatest thing that that's what holds us all together. And that's really what this is all about. People that had priorities of, say for example, materialistic priorities, after their near-death experience, many of them went on to create charities and to do things for others. And they realized that the most important thing is serving others and loving others. Thank you for sharing those ideas. I'm in line with all of those. I, I don't think any of that is far out because I that aligns with what I believe as well. Moving forward in your life, where does this take you? Like, what do you feel like? I believe that these traumatic and difficult experiences for us can either turn into things that really shut us down or we can try to find the meaning and purpose behind them. And it sounds like the meaning and purpose for you was this beautiful removing of the blinders of seeing life in a specific box. And now you could see something so much broader and it led to more research and a greater opening of your mind and your understanding. And so... This being said, how does that, I think navigating those spaces of change and opening, what advice would you have for people who are navigating those spaces? I'm giving you information and what has happened and transpired in the past 29 years, because it's been 29 years since the invasion. And so it came in steps. It came in baby steps that I could take. It came in baby steps that I could listen to the intuitive nudge. Like, for example, a a book would just, you know, kind of catch my attention and pop out at me and it had the answers to what I needed. So I really think that we're slowly guided in ways that's continuous. And if we stick with it, if we listen, if we allow ourselves to expand, that's how you get to these greater levels. Because I certainly you know, it, there in like a year. I wasn't even there in a couple of years. It took me time. But looking back on it, I have the advantage of having the perspective of, I'm so glad that I followed the intuitive nudges. I'm so glad for the blessings that have come from this because it's much easier to see in hindsight than when you're directly in it. Oh, so I so think, true. Yeah. I think that's a real big takeaway because sometimes you may be in the midst of something and it may seem really thick and and dark. But I really encourage everyone to keep going through, just go through it. Thank you for sharing that point, because I think that is huge. We learn line upon line, precept upon precept. And because of that, we don't see often how much progress we're making. So sometimes it is a 20 or a 30 year, you know, take of growth before you can look back and say, oh, look at what my path was. There was purpose all along. I agree. And you know, there were milestones that that 
you know, stand out in my mind. For example, when my grandfather died, it was 1998. I was in Kuwait and I had this dream. This is two weeks after he had passed. And in my dream, he told me, I forgot to give you something. And he had this little card. It had like a religious symbol on it. But he told me, he says, I had this with me from the time I was in World War II until now. And I want you to have it. And in my dream, he put it in his wallet and he gave it to my uncle. Well, when I woke up from that dream, I called my mom and she had just been with my uncle and my uncle had my grandpa's wallet and they were looking for some, for his insurance papers in it. And they saw this little religious symbol card and and my mom said, she asked my uncle if he knew what it was and he said he didn't know. And he asked my mom, do you want to keep it? And she said, yes. And so she said to me, can you describe it? And I did. And this was something that none of us had known about. Wow. Um, That was a big thing for me. And then another milestone that stands out is also when my mom, after my mom passed, she passed in 2010 and her death was sudden and it it was really challenging. And this time I was also out of the country. I was (laughs) in Iran at this time and visiting relatives on my current husband's side. And my mom passed and that was really, really, really challenging for me. But she has been so communicative and she sent signs and things and she has really helped me to expand even further. Mm -hmm. So there are big major milestones along the way. It's not like we're just given, you know, little tidbits, but you really just have to hang in there. And I believe at the end, we will all have a beautiful tapestry that makes sense that we can look back on and feel really good about. You know, I love that you use the the visualization of tapestry because, you know, when the tapestry is turned over, you really just see one thread at a time. You know, you see the different colors and some of those threads are going to be dark and some of them are going to be blues and reds and greens. And, you know, some of them are going to be black and some of them are going to be bright whites and yellows and, you know, all the different experiences and emotions that create what a life is. But when that tapestry is turned over, you know, if you have the faith that you're being guided, that there's purpose behind it, that the universe has your back, that, you know, God is there, that there's greater purpose, then you can really believe that when that tapestry is turned over and you can see the whole picture that it's going to be something opulent. Yeah, I totally agree. Do you have any final thoughts as we close up this discussion of what you would want people to know about this type of transition or about your story or um, what you learned? Everything that I am discussing, everything that we are discussing and talking about, you know, I don't think people have to go through horrendous things like a war. I think just having the intention, if you want to just expand in love and in happiness, I really think that just setting that intention will start the ball rolling and start guiding you. Everyone has their own compass, their own guidance that they'll be given. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it sounds so woo-woo and it sounds so new agey and this sort of thing. But really, I think it's based more on scientific findings and spiritual knowings, because I think we live in a time where science and spirituality are, are validating themselves. And so, or each other. What I'm trying to say is just follow the nudges and 
everybody has the same capability. There's not one person that is more in tune than someone else. It's just really your intention. I've always admired mediums and that sort of thing. And I think that is a potential that we all have. We all have that potential to stay connected and stay connected to a higher source, stay connected to our loved ones. The universe that we live in is really much more expanded than what we give it credit for. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey. Thank you, Lori. Before I let you off, I want you to tell us really quickly so that we have the conclusion to the story. What happened to your husband and your husband's family? And how happy were your parents to see you when you got off that plane? (laughs) Uh, I'll start with the happy part. So it was, I felt like, uh, like a superstar. I stepped off the plane and honestly, all of my family members from aunts, uncles, cousins, my grandparents, my parents and sisters, everyone was just waiting there. And it was such a tremendous feeling to just be hugged by all of them. I mean, I just, even now it, it, you know, I tear up, especially my mom, because she, (laughs) she wouldn't let me go. That was wonderful. And I have to say, as far as my former husband, so he ended up staying through the whole thing and he did some heroic things as well. He hid the Western. So women and children were released eventually, but the men weren't released, the American men and and foreigners weren't released until I believe around December of 1990. So keep them hidden and provide food for them. And he joined the resistance and did some pretty amazing things. When Kuwait was liberated, I'm happy to say that all of our family members, immediate ones, you know, in this story were okay and safe. I have to tell you, the family that hid me, that the uncle that I was referring to, his daughter at the time was eight years old and he had some sons, but I remember her being eight and she is now a well-accomplished surgeon in Kuwait. They just have gone on to do amazing service-oriented things for everyone. There are some really bright, happy endings there. (laughs) Good. Some happily ever afters. Yeah. My former husband and I, you know, we ended up getting divorced and that's okay. I'm happily remarried and he's happily remarried. And so honestly, there really are happy endings within this story, you know, all the way around. It's a process, isn't it? It's that whole life journey and how it shapes us and what it's on. And it's always, it's always messy. It's always complex. I love your point today of because it is the journey and sometimes we're not able to see or find any sense of organization to it as we go through it. But I think the important thing is to seek, to believe, to move forward with hope and love and stay in those positive places as it unfolds. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, all I have to do is look back. I've gone through war. I've gone through divorce. I've gone through death. And yet... I would have to say that for all of those things, I'm very, very, very happy. I'm very, very content at this point. And it's because of the graces that have been shown and given in my life and the steps along the way. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Lori. Our life experiences shape us. We are stretched and refined, pruned and challenged. And in that process, we make many choices. We can choose bitterness or cynicism, doubt, victimhood, on and on. 
We can also choose hope, faith, love, forgiveness, light. You know, I've noticed something about older people. Most of them are either grumpy, old, bitter, kind of rough, or they are wise and old and enlightened, have a sense of light and love around them. I realize that these are extremes, but oftentimes they are one or the other, and they get this way by the choices that they make and the stories they tell themselves about the things that happen to them. The things that they focus on play a major role in determining who they are, as it is for us, who we are, who we become. In my interview with Jo Marie, we see a woman who, like us all, is shaped by her experiences, and in this case, open to a broader way of considering life. As you consider your own life experiences, especially the difficult ones, especially the ones that hold any shame or horror, consider your interpretation of the events and the story that you have built around them. Does that story feed anger or fear? And if so, how can you reshape that story to serve you and to help you find meaning? What steps can you take forward along that path that Joe talked about that help us to seek a little more enlightenment and understanding? If you are seeking for that meaning and that learning in those difficult spaces, congratulate yourself for working on your own healing, on your wise self-supporting's approach. Sometimes we need help to reframe those stories closest to us. And if that's the case, you can, of course, reach out to me or listen to some of the earlier podcasts that share the five steps to reframing your story. Thank you for being with us today. May you grow and stretch as you write your best life story, knowing that while you can't always choose what happens to you, you can choose your response to those events. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day, The 21 Life Connection Challenges. That's my latest book on Amazon. And if you're interested in telling your own story, I am opening up a new part of the Love Your Story platform called Tell Your Story. And it's part of helping people collect their personal histories, doing a recording and transcripts. If you're interested in information on that, reach out to me also. You can reach me at lauriejlee at msn.com. And of course, find me and send messages through the website at loveyourstorypodcast.com. We'll see you in a couple of weeks on the Love Your Story podcast.